This is a test recording of using Anchor for the very first time. Um, Kevin Glenn is the name. I do not know yet how I change the name of a channel or a station or add them. I've just been going through the little tutorial at the beginning. Um, I My undergraduate in college is industrial design. Um, I'm kind of trying to lean myself towards a, a tangible user experience now, perhaps in further education. And I've just done bits of design in between them. 26 years old, um, and I'm just wanting to engage with a new platform, a new medium, and see what impact they can have. So this is just a sample. Um, call in if you want to. I, it, it, that'd be very interesting to hear someone do that, so I can review that as well. Um, I'm just an Irish man living in Dublin, but from the west of Ireland originally. Uh, and I'm quite a big interest in design, technology, uh, so society is affected by these habitual forming things that we create and use to fill up our life and how we perceive and create content and absorb it and relay it and remash it and remix it and all in the name of entertainment and being stimulated with the guise sometimes of actually learning something. But we'll see. Uh, also, I really like the sound of my voice very much. No, that's a joke. I think it's a little bit rough, but we could help refine that if I start using this more regularly. Anyway, that's it. Um, this will be up for 24 hours, I believe. If anyone's out there listening, um, send me something back. Tell me what you know about this stuff. Um, and we'll see what we can do when we change our attention span from visual back to oral, oral dynamic. Although, is it dangerous? Podcasts tend to be around 20 to 40 minutes long, which is great because you're actually staying concentrated, although you're usually doing something else. Not usually, but sometimes people are always doing something else in their busy lives and then listen to the podcast, so they're not really fully engaged. But I like that it's a long piece of material, while Snapchats, Snapchat and Vine or whatever, all that kind of setup is kind of training our brain to be smaller. Anyway, enough waffling. Put the syrup on and let's eat. Talk to you guys later. Bye. It's not over. For some reason, it's frozen. I can't pause. Okay, it's unfrozen, and I can pause the recording. So that was a bonus piece, if anyone heard that. Hello, and uh, welcome to me speaking into the airwaves. Uh, Kevin Glenn here, and a medium-aged designer who graduated a couple of years ago, but did a couple of things in life, did some travel and worked wherever. Now really trying to go from industrial design background in his undergrad into uh, more of a UX user experience, but more holistic. Ultimately, to be a specialist in tangible user interface, uh, TUI, TUI, instead of the, the GUI. Um, and just kind of been going to talks and events about the future of tech and you know, self-monitoring and measurement and VR, and I was at an event there. and Really interesting stuff with people who have boatloads of PhDs everywhere. It's an ocean of PhDs, and these people clearly need a designer. And I, I, don't, I don't like saying that in a way that, like, oh, look at this. If you just put a designer in here, we're going to make your work way more valuable. It's not so much that we make it better. We, in fact, we're probably going to lose some of the valuable information that they've done because... 
as good as a designer you are, you, you can only pull out so much from your own perspective to get it all there and make a coherent message and get to the point and bring it to market. Or you got to just focus on some things. And sometimes that is the anti of what deep research is. Deep research is, is this kind of going into the, the unknown and foraging for, the, for lovely, juicy principles or notions that aren't even thought of yet. And design is kind of going to cut in there and siphon it a little bit. Um, one example was a monitor on your lower back that will let you know absolutely all of your posture. When you're doing a squat, you're doing it wrong. When you're running, your your foot rate, everything, your balance when you're leaning left or right. How, you know, I, it's just through a bit of smart mathematics that they work out through the, the simple enough sensors that are inside of it. It's like a three, a three angular accelerometer. I guess that means in three axes, uh, it can work out all these things. And the problem is, how do you relay this information to the user in the moment? It's not, it's not very, not very easy because you're selling this product, which has got quite a bit of smarts in it, and it's on your low back. And now, so okay, you have a belt. You have to have a belt. Let's say, well, I haven't thought about this. I only met them a couple of days ago, and I'm actually going to sit down. I have the, I have the business card of, of one of the uh, PhD people. And I'm going to try and give them some advice. I'm not even going to try and ask, can I get work with them? I'm just going to try and give them advice, and then we'll see what happens from that. But just as, as a thought exercise, how do you relay that information meaningfully now? So now you, you basically need a second device. So the established platform is your smartphone, but of course, the smartphone always has to be in the pocket. So now you're basically left with a smartwatch because you need to relay stuff because you don't want to have a muffled voice underneath your T-shirt calling out, voices out they have they have vibrations and maybe you could learn a kind of a set of vibrations that would maybe that's the only way to do it is that when you're doing a particular task um actually i might write this down now so maybe you're probably still gonna need the watch but when you're doing a particular task the vibrations go louder more violent when you're more off center to the motion that you're supposed to be doing and then they kind of go more steady and mild and calm and almost non-existent when you're doing it correctly. That might be a way to do it without having any a GUI, basically, graphical user interface. And that would be sticking to a 2E, a tangible user interface, which I really feel with the rise of the Internet of Things and the idea that everything can be embedded with uh, added value through very small bit of you know online internetness and cheap sensors, well, relatively cheap, getting cheaper all the time. You can, you know, change the way that people consume and relate to their information. Anyway, where have I gone? Um, that was that. Really, really cool life-logging application with a VR headset, an Oculus, not an Oculus, but a HTC Vive. Uh, that was actually, that's another thing I'm going to go, I'm going to go on to another point for that. Hi again, uh, this is Kevin Glynn. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Melted Laughter. Uh, I don't like putting out those feelers, especially when the content that I have there isn't quite <laughs> full yet, but I'm working towards it. My voice is a bit hoarse now for some unapparent reason. I haven't been drinking or anything like that. I don't think I'm unwell. To finish off uh, a point in my previous uh, little anchor clip, um, there is a very interesting character, uh, and I just need to get his name now for us because it'd be very rude for me not to give him credit. Um, he's a PhD lecturer at DCU, uh, Dublin City University in Ireland, 
Uh, he's devoted nearly nine, ten years of his life to his, uh, quantified self life logging. He, he would differentiate quantified self and biohacking and life logging as three separate entities. So quantified self is recording something to get a measurable insight and we can use that, as, we can read it and then it can become something. While biohacking is to improve your body to get an advantage. Let's say, for example, remember those world records or Olympic records that were uh, broken by that really tight swimsuit? You know, Michael Phelps got beaten just by a pip by, I think, an Australian or maybe a German swimmer. And it was because the other swimmer had this new technology swimwear. And that swimwear was uh, afterwards banned. But his, 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 his medal still stood, and I don't know if his record still stands. That's something I'd have to look into. So life-logging, David Gurn. I don't know if I'm saying Gurn right. Not David Gurn. Apologies. Dr. Cahill Gurn. Dr. Cahill Gurn. So let's not have that wrong. You can follow him at Cahill, I think. Let me just, I'm, I have the browser open in front of me. Um, yeah, wow, fair. This guy, this guy was on top of Twitter before it even was a thing, I think, because I was looking at his bio on the university website, and it said, at Cahill. Now, Cahill isn't the most common name globally, I suppose, because it's an Irish word spelled C-A-T-H-E-T-C-A-T-H-A-L. Um, but it's at Cahill. It's, his, it's just his name. At Cahill on Twitter. So he was the first Cahill in the world to sign up to Twitter. Which I think is amazing. Uh, he joined in 2007, August. And he, he has 3,566 tweets. And he has 816 followers. So not massive. So we've, I've gone off on so many tangents already. And this is why I need to work on delivering a point in these. I'm, not, I'm just trying to figure out, do I want to use this medium um, as me just talking? Or am I actually going to get to a point where I do what I would do for any design thing? I, I, I'll sketch out my topics and themes, and then I'll do a little wireframe, uh, just like a movement points and where it could move to and what would we want to discuss more. Just anything you would do for absolutely anything in your life. Uh, but then I also like this kind of off-the-cuff, just going for it kind of thing, and you're not even thinking twice about it. But... I'm going to start using the desktop bit of it and start maybe editing and putting in some music. Because um, it is nice to begin with maybe a nice music intro and I'm going off on topic. So anyway, let's continue. Cahill has spent 10 years of his life life-logging himself using various equipment. So he takes 2,000 photos a day. There's audio he takes, but I don't think he takes the audio in public areas because people don't like and be recorded for many legal reasons. So, um, and I think it's quite amazing that this man is going to have basically, like, this is what I find confusing. He's going to have a harsh, cold, clinical representation of his life through these mediums of audio and, and visual photos that will not be able to be questioned or it's, to me, it's irrefutable. You can go back and you can see it and, and it kind of takes away something that means to be human, that you make mistakes. I, I, I think as a designer, what makes you good at design is you learn mistakes to keep. So when you look back and see things in different perspectives with your memory, you kind of skew them and you actually transform them and mutate them into, the, into the, this perspective that you want to see. Now, sometimes we do that wrongly, but sometimes we do that for a very important, elegant reason that, that makes us better people or advances us in an idea that we thought we have. But... We won't be able to do that now if we can just 
go back and see exactly as it was. So how will that change who we are as people? And he, he completely speculates that it will completely change the way that we are as people and how we social interact. And I'm just very interested about law alone, just the implications, but that will be another thought process. So to just cut through what I spoke about in my prior to, this is Kevin Glynn, and you're listening to my station, and I, I need to rename it, and I think I'm going to rename it to my Twitter handle and Instagram handle, which is Melted Laughter, and, um, or maybe my slogan, which is Get Rich or Design Trying. Please don't steal that before I get to it, because I'm pretty pretty bad at remembering to do these things. Um, so, Dr. Gern create a life logging, 10 years, loads of information, trapped away in the computer, or in the cloud, and the, no one really realizes the weight of their digital lives, their digital interactions. You know, if you have a school bag or a backpack, the objects that can fit inside of it are the natural limit to what you can bring with you. You know, it's kind of like a, a lady's handbag or a man's satchel. It is just naturally limited, and that is the quintessential objects that will embody your life in that moment, because those tools are the things that you need with you in that time. While everyone says about everything has to be contextual design, you you need things only when you need them. They come up when you need them. Like your, your bus pass or your boarding pass will turn up when you're in the airport on the top of your screen. This is what we talk about, contextual design. But how do we do it when there's such an infinite plethora of information about our own lives? So um, one of his students, his PhD students, uh, created an interface with the virtual reality, and he go into it, and it was like, in the Matrix, when they call upon the, the arm, armory section with all the guns, float into the infinite white space, and then go... This is what it was like. You put in some search words, keywords you want to search, and then all the images the computer figures out that have that object in the picture come up. And it's just such a nice way to illustrate all that data and it's really unleashing it from the captivities of a hard drive in the cloud. But at the same time, it's so systemic of what I keep seeing with VR is that we're just going to move. We had graphics on paper, went to the tablet and the tablet. I, I'd argue the laptop and desktop kind of didn't necessarily mean we were following that same format again, even though it's still a flat graphical interface. But then the tablet really brought it back again, that this idea of this flat panel, this window into, into information. Now I've seen more panels of images floating in space. There's a flat, you can walk through them and look behind you and you see the mirrored version of the image. And I was like, why can't this, why can't these been in spheres? Obviously graphical time, expense, I know. It's good alone that for a research study that this has actually been illustrated in such a user-friendly way and that you can actually interact with it. But it'd be great if these were spheres uh, maybe gravity, kind of electron orbits, and so clusters of words that have similar connections around each other. You can walk through it, and then you can see a sphere of the of the, of the image. So that is it. That is the rant there. Um, get Richard Design trying. I'll hopefully keep up the platform. Thanks, guys, for listening. Adios. Metal laughter. Part two of calling upon memories. Um, so we'll be able to call upon memories instantly with a brain that we won't even learning stuff and in one way it's going to be such a beautiful way to work because it's just it's well obviously neuroscience hasn't like we're only on the surface of this but if we can 
access the power of a computer to work out equations or imagine you had an idea of a shape but you could actually increase your spatial abilities and look at it and kind of render it and keep it paused in your brain and put shadow effects on it and work gears and see the wear and tear through computation power that's running through. But the scary, the interesting bit here and a simpler thought because I'm not going to go into it because I don't really have the education perhaps or the research done on it is with your memories, we won't have to remember memories. Like I said, that everything will be recorded. You can just search it. So we won't even have to think about things. We'll just become very contextual that when you buy a bottle of wine for your friend and he really liked it or type some beers and it was a really great beer. You can't remember. You're on holidays. You don't know what it was, but you'd love to get it for him for his birthday again because you know he really enjoyed it. You could just trust the computer to go through your memories and find it for you. And then, boom, there it is. You haven't even thought about it. You didn't even have to think about it. It was kind of just brought to your attention. So we won't be creating synapses, synaptical electrical movements to parts of our brain where obviously memories are stored. or I don't know how they're stored, but... So what will that do to us as people if we aren't calling upon memories? Because these memories are like islands in the ocean or anchors that shape who we are. By accessing them every day, they create, because the mind is plastic, they form kind of what is you. I don't think what is you is actually 100% cemented, but over thousands and millions of connections over a long period of time, it, you know, the, the essence of you will will be there and be very hard to change the essence of you. Not that you can't be completely changed. And that's why some people read dramatic, traumatic, life-changing stuff happens to them. They actually come out very different people. So what kind of person would we be when we don't access our memories? And it'd be good that we won't, maybe we could even block bad memories. Can you imagine every time your brain starts to think about a bad memory, the machine comes in or the program and it can cut it off. So anyway, just an interesting food for thought. Um, but as a designer, knowing that UI currently on your phones and tablets, and at least VR and AR is going to kind of get us closer into the, what I imagine maybe a three-dimensional interface for your thinking would be. We are still trying to get good at that. Can you imagine that there will be UX, UI designers for accessing your memories? and how it gets represented to you and when that information should be contextual to you. It's just a very interesting future thought and it's something to keep in mind, but we're many years away from that, so let's order our pizzas more efficiently. <laughs>